This is Larry Camp, and welcome to the Nobody Knows Your Story podcast, which just happens to come with a side of Hawaiiana. Nobody Knows Your Story is a podcast which I believe will impact each listener in a positive way. As you listen to the experiences that have transformed, shaped, and guided each guest, perhaps you'll better understand your own personal journey. Some will surprise, some will make you question, and some will inspire, but all will leave you in a better place for listening in. As for the Hawaiiana, well, that's just a big part of my life story. So I invite you to check in each week and listen to the life experiences of people just like you. So we just heard from Brother Is, Israel Kamakaviva Ole. Well, this is the first of our Every Two Weeks podcast. And today I am going to be visiting with Chuck Hagan, who is a member of the uh, poker group that I played in uh, down in Arizona for many years. And as I got to know Chuck a little bit, you know, because when you're playing poker, you're also uh, spending a lot of time talking and just uh, cracking jokes and different things. And I got to know Chuck and know that he uh, works on helicopters. I didn't know exactly what he did. And so I'm interested in hearing a little bit more about that. 
he also went and spent some time in Maui. And so we'll uh, talk, I'm sure, some point, maybe a little bit about that as well. But uh, Chuck, welcome to Nobody Knows Your Story. Thank you, Larry. Hopefully you guys are doing well in your new location. We are. We're doing well. And, uh, you know, I, I will be honest and say that I miss uh, our uh, every couple of weeks or once a month or whatever we ended up uh, doing. But our, to- our poker times, those were fun kinds, man. Kind of got lax a little bit there at the end when everyone was kind of busy with life, right? Yeah, that's always the thing. And so, Chuck, why don't you just uh, tell us your life story? And I mean, like I said earlier. Start at the beginning? Well, yeah, I, I would. I mean, I think that that's a, a good place as any. And I am interested in hearing about what you do for a living. I think that that's uh, pretty interesting stuff. So, yeah, go ahead and get started. Sure. So, I uh, grew up in Milwaukee, was born and raised in Milwaukee till I was 21-ish. Grew up on us, you know, I, I go back to, I, I still go back when I go home. I, I've driven by my old house, I don't know how many times, and even probably the last time I was home, which was three years ago, I drove by my old house and, and how small it seems now compared to growing up there. And we lived on a court. And so, you know, we played baseball and everything right there in that court. It seemed humongous at the time. And now you go back and I'm like, I don't know how we played a single softball game in this in this street. Uh, you know, I had good neighbors. That I had I grew up with neighbors that were a, a year younger than me. So I had three neighbors that we hung out and did everything together. And life was good then. And then uh, I played football and soccer I from the time I was in grade school. I actually played with some people that played in the NFL from grade school. But uh, yeah, so I played football and I played soccer. So on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays were football days and Tuesdays and Thursdays were soccer days and soccer was on Sundays and football was on Saturday. So I kept pretty busy as a youngster having those funny stories of your your parents telling you I walked uphill both ways to school. Kids today don't grow up like we grew up. It was a two-mile bike ride from my house to school that I went to school and I went to a, a Catholic grade school and then I also went to a Catholic high school and I was raised Catholic. I, I'm one of the uh, Christmas and Easter Catholics now. I go for those two events to make sure I do my penance and do my worth. Uh, I'm not, I, you know, I can't say I'm, I fully buy into it or I, or I completely disagree with it. You know, obviously it helps people there in, in their own ways, but for me, I mean, I, I did it all. So I did all that. And then after high school, I, I mean, church wasn't really a thing when I was in the army. So obviously after, after high school uh, and it, so sorry, I keep jumping forward. That's okay. Um, I was, I was going to ask you, cause I know you said your parents got divorced. I think when you were in high school. Yeah. So I was a junior or a senior when my parents got divorced. And so I stayed with my mom, my dad. Uh, I still don't really have the full story. My, my family doesn't necessarily like to tell all the stories all the time. My dad was a Milwaukee police detective. The story, and, and I, the story that I know, it probably isn't the, the exact story, but uh, it was one of these uh, go, go bust a drug dealer and keep his money kind of thing, but it was the wrong house and it was a bad warrant. And it was, a, well, you can quit now and keep your retirement or we can take you to court kind of things. Mm-hmm. My dad was also an alcoholic at the time, and, and that's his own his own road. So he's taking care of at least the alcoholism portion of it so far. So, do you think that uh, that divorce though impacted, or or maybe um, put you in where you are now in terms of your religious feelings and and how I guess uh, you're you're more like you said a 
Easter and Christmas uh, Catholic? Yeah. Well, no, I think as far as the religion goes, I, have you seen the movie The Mummy? Yes. With uh, Brandon Frazier. And then the, there's the one guy that has like every single necklace and he's saying all the prayers and he's like, you can never be too safe. Mm-hmm. Well, I, that's kind of where I'm at. I, I do the guy with all the necklaces going, I, I might not be right. You know, this might not be the exact one. Right. Yeah. I, and do I, do I believe that there's probably something out there? I'd like to believe that, you know, do I necessarily believe it? No, I'm not, I'm not sold on it. No. Like I say, I just wondered if maybe the, the divorce had any kind of an impact. Cause I know that myself, uh, as I mentioned to you, my parents got divorced. I was a little older but I know it impacted mm-hmm. my my sister quite a bit because she was still living at home. And I think that sometimes the age that you are when these things happen, you know, impacts you differently. So that, that I was no, just curious. No, because I mean, I still was, as long as I lived at home, I was still going to church, whether it was with my parents or my grandparents or whomever, you know, whomever we were with. And the rest of my family is also Catholic. So anything, you know, weddings, anything, funerals, any of those kind of things were all done in church. Yeah, I mean, did it disenfranchise me from the church? I wouldn't say that them being divorced did, no. And then on top of that, my mom, well, when they did get divorced, my mom decided that was the, the best time to start taking to uh, the child psychologist and the family counselor and and all that kind of stuff. And I was like, you know, at that point in my life, I said, look, you two got divorced. That's not my problem. You know, that's between you and dad. Not that has nothing. I understand that you think it's going to impact me, but life goes on. We didn't have to move. We're still living in the same house. And I started working when I was probably 12. Not to say that I had like all kinds of money or anything, but I was, I started caddying every summer when I was 12. And by the time I was 15, I was already a manager at a grocery store. I managed the produce section, not for very long, but I was the manager before I got fired. So yeah, I mean, I had always worked, so it wasn't like a financial burden on me or or the family necessarily. And my mom had always worked, and he paid child support and all that kind of stuff. So, and I and then at that point, it wasn't like to go hang out with dad for the weekend was almost more of a pain in the you know pain in the butt because he's what, living. What in about your uh, what about your siblings though? Because you were the oldest, right? Yeah, so I've got uh, two younger sisters and then uh, my my little brother. I don't know. And, and, and thinking back on it, it's kind of a blur as to what they were all, you know, we kind of all did our own things. Mm-hmm. So especially being the oldest, you, you don't want to hang out with your little sisters or your little brother because they're your, they're the younger ones. You're by then I was too busy, you know, hanging out with friends from high school and everything else or working. And so did it affect them differently? Probably being, you know, younger. So, yeah. Okay. Well, so, you know, that takes you up kind of through high school then. I, I know that you got into the army, but was it directly after high school or did you do, no, do some schooling so, in between or? Yeah, no. So I had been dating a girl that didn't go to my high school. That was a friend of one of my the next door neighbors. The next door neighbors went to a public school that was closer to my house. And so they went to the public school that was w- within three miles of my house, whereas I went to Catholic school, which was halfway across town. So I would take an hour long bus ride every day there and back. It was just a, one of those random occurrences that we just kind of started dating. And then we dated for, I don't know, five, five years, something like that. So probably 16 until 20 ish. And then at the end, it was on and off again. And so when I graduated from high school, I'd been working 
I was working in warehouse jobs, making 23 bucks an hour. So, you know, at that point I was set, I had money all day and I, you know, I was either working or, or sleeping at that point. Cause I'd worked uh, 10 hour days. So life at that point was good because I had all kinds of money in my pocket. And, you know, I was even working two or three jobs. And then about the time I graduated from high school, I moved in with my dad because it was almost like being single and having my own house because my dad was never home. He was always working. Mm-hmm. And so through that kind of process, my dad finally said, you, you need to do something with your life. Working in a warehouse ain't it. We have a technical school in Milwaukee, uh, Milwaukee Area Technical School, and they had an aviation program. And so kind of what drove me in that direction was when I was very young, my, my uncle, one of my uncles was a, a pilot in Vietnam and he flew Hueys. And one of my early, earliest memories was him actually taking me for a flight in a Huey. I want to say that pretty much, I think all we did was get in the helicopter, go up in the air and came right back down. But it was like we went flying forever for my memory of it. And so that kind of put me into this aviation. And we had during in high school, we had some aviation classes that I had taken as like a shop class. And so I was pretty good at it. And then uh, I went to technical school and I got my license. And about the time I graduated, I wanted to go in the army to be a pilot originally. And my girlfriend kind of talked me out of that. And then when we broke up, it was like, well, I'm going to go be a pilot now. Now I can be a pilot because we're done. And uh, so I went down to the army recruiter and talked to them and took all the tests and passed with flying colors. And then I had to go take a medical test and they basically measure everything about you. You got to get on a treadmill, you got to do heart rate, you got to do all these things. And I knew the eye, there was an eye exam. And by then I was already wearing glasses. So I wore my glasses for about a week straight, hoping that when I took them off, I'd be able to see 2020. Because I knew once I made it to through basic training and to flight school, I could then wear glasses. It still doesn't make any sense to me, but whatever. That's the rules. Mm-hmm. Um, I took all the tests. It was eight hours worth of medical exams. And the last thing was the eye exam. And of course, I got in there. The eye doctor wasn't around. So I ran up and I, I checked all the things. Okay, left, right, left, right, up, down. Went and sat in the seat. He said, are you ready? And I said, yep. And then he flipped the slides on me. <laughs> I failed miserably. Pilot went uh, away real quick. The recruiter still needed numbers. So he came back and said, well, well what do you think about working on helicopter engines? I could do that. What the heck? Why not? So truly, this wasn't a profession I selected for myself. It was an army recruiter that selected it for me. Yeah, but you know what? That uncle that flew the Hueys and took you up in the air did kind of kind of set that little uh, thought in your mind that 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 might be something you want to do. Right. So I went through basic training at Fort Leonard Wood in Missouri, and I was signed up to be in the national. Going back a, a couple steps, when I graduated from Maine Peace School, in Milwaukee was Midwest Express, and they would hire you for such. And while I was going to A and P school, I was still working in warehouses. Midwest Express would hire you for seven dollars and fifty cents an hour, basically to clean the bathroom on the airplanes. And I said, I make twenty at that point. At that point, I think I was making twenty five bucks an hour. So why am I going to take a fifteen dollar pay cut to clean bathrooms? That's not being a mechanic. That's just being a washroom attendant. Mm-hmm. And you know, they're like, well, you got to you got to put in your time there to to move into the to the real work. And I wanted nothing to do with that. And everyone that had any jobs in Wisconsin, every time I would go interview with them, they would say, well, we really, we'd like to hire you, but you don't have any experience. I'm like, well, if you don't hire me, how am I ever going to get the experience? And they're like, well, you know, that was pretty much everyone I interviewed with was they wanted experience. And if you don't have it, we can't hire you. That is what initiated the whole going in the military portion of, well, they're going to do it 
for free. So I might as well go get, I got to go get the experience for anybody that even consider hiring me. And so with, with the recruiter bugging me, I figured, well, if I go in the national guard, at least that gets my foot in the door. I'm working on something. I can come back and find another job and I'll have a little bit of experience. And hopefully from there, that'll, I can have the experience and go from there. And so I went to basic training, did all that because I was in the guard and because I already had my license, the state of Wisconsin decided that I didn't need to go to AIT, which is advanced training for whatever job you select. And they sent me to Virginia. The army did, even though I told them I'm not supposed to go to Virginia. I don't need to go to this training. I'm already licensed to do this job. They sent me anyways. Then I got sent home from there without doing any training and spent the month trying to figure out what the heck I was supposed to be doing with the army. They sent me back to Fort Leonard Wood because I wasn't supposed to just be able to go right to work with my license. Apparently, I had to have some kind of extra training. So there were supposed to be some helicopters in Missouri that needed work, and they were going to put me there. And I got to Missouri, and there was no helicopters. So I basically worked in the reception area for all the new trainees. Then I did my eight weeks of training all at Fort Leonard Wood, was gone for a month, and basically came right back to Fort Leonard Wood. And now I was in charge of the people that I just was eight weeks ago. All the drill sergeants at that point know who I was because they just ran me through their course. And so it was kind of fun now being able to be the bad guy to all the new guys that I had just been a month a month or so earlier. Mm-hmm. And while I was doing that, I was in a unit that was basically transient military people that were waiting to get reassigned, um, whether they were waiting on clearances. I, I mean, there was a guy that was a a communication guy that was waiting on a top secret clearance to go somewhere. There were special forces. uh, There's a special forces sniper, special forces medic. They were waiting on clearances to go overseas. A lot of it was people waiting to go overseas that had either transitioned from a guard unit and were going active duty or were just active duty and and, and needed a place to go while they were waiting on on their orders or a clearance to come through. So I spent a, a month with all these people going all over the world I met a girl that was also from Milwaukee and she was going to Korea and I went back home for another month and I went to one drill with the guard unit and didn't get to work on the helicopter. And I went back and I called my recruiter back and I said, send me to Korea. And he was like, excuse me. I'm like, I want to go active duty. I want to go to Korea. So I went back to the Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri, spent another two weeks there while they got all my paperwork and orders in place. And then I went to Korea from there. And so I was active duty in Korea for better part of a year. And that's where I started working, actually working and learning how to fix helicopters. Now, I would say well, that was the first time I actually started. Hold on, Chuck. I got to ask you. So was Korea, though, because that's where helicopters were or was Korea because that's where the girl went? Yeah, the, the second part. <laughs> <laughs> we weren't quite thinking with, you know, logically at that point. <laughs> yeah. So anyway. <laughs> And I, of course, I get to Korea and you, you would think everyone's at the same army base. Well, no, there's army bases all over Korea. And she was in she was on the north side of South Korea. I was in the middle of South Korea. They wouldn't let me go see her for the first two months I was there because you don't want to just cut cut loose somebody that has no idea what they're doing in a foreign country. Makes sense to me now. Right. Um, but I did get to go see her and already had figured out that this was that was a mistake and it wasn't going to happen. It was with best intentions, but wasn't, wasn't going to turn into anything more than whatever it had been, which was nothing. Um, yeah. So that's where the focus yeah. of the helicopters really came in then. Yeah. So I had worked on, uh, 
basically everything that the U.S. Army has helicopter-wise, I worked on in Korea. I lucked out again. These all these things fell into place luckily for me. I worked in the highest level of Army maintenance you can you can be in. We got to do more work to hit helicopter engines than you would normally get to do in any other bases. So we we were completely tearing them apart and putting them back together there. And we also had the civilians, which it was at the time was Nine Corps, and they went a little bit further than we did. Before I had left, I was basically doing their their work as well and just going in their toolboxes and getting whatever tools I had to have. And they would come and sign off my work. Spent a year in Korea. And then they actually asked me to stay, but they had asked too late. And, and the whole time I was in the Army, my particular job in the Army had been a red flag, which means there's not enough of us. So I could never advance in rank because there was so few of us that did that job. And, and getting rank in the army never did it for me. I, you know, basically you would go up in rank and basically become a, a babysitter the, the higher up you went. And I never wanted that. Well, and you weren't and, looking uh, to make it a career, were you? No, not at all. I mean, I was definitely getting an education. Um, mm-hmm. Got a chance to do a lot of dumb stuff. Almost fell out of helicopters multiple times, you know, <laughs> at 10,000 feet. And I watched the toolbox slide out the door almost and I caught it. And I wasn't seat belted in at the time. And I went, oh, geez, I almost went out after the toolbox. That was dumb. And I got to do other dumb stuff that I'm sure no one in the military wants to hear about. But yeah, I stood on the skids of a helicopter three feet off the ground and went 108 knots down the down the runway, yelling, go faster, go faster. This is cool. <laughs> I would have been a, a bug splat on the on the pavement if I had flown off. You know? Right. Yeah, just dumb stuff because it's the Army and no one cares. Well, so where'd so, you go from Korea then? What was the next move? So from Korea, I uh, I came to Fort Hood in Texas, in the middle of Texas. And then I spent two years at Fort Hood. Basically, I was then, when I was at Fort Hood, I didn't really have a job anymore because we went to a line maintenance unit, which we didn't really, we would change out small parts if, if they were required. But any of the major work, we would take the engine off and send it to somebody else and they would do the work. But at the same time, I had been working with the General Electric tech rep, and he had given me a bunch of letters from GE that said I could do a bunch of different work that nobody else at Fort Hood could do. So I got to kind of travel around Fort Hood and go to other Army units and do work at their location because I had a letter that said I could do it, where they didn't have the letters. I worked in a shop that we did every, we did all the different items on the, on the helicopter. We did hydraulics. We did sheet metal. The only two things that we didn't do on a helicopter were the guns and avionics. So like the radios and all that kind of stuff. We didn't mess with that. I had no interest in any of those anyways, because the armament guys always seem to have the worst job ever and they had to be the biggest contortionists. So yeah, so I did sheet metal work. I did some hydraulic stuff. I did the rotor system. So anytime somebody needed something, it was a fight to see who got to do the job, even if it was your job that you were supposed to be doing, someone else would be over there doing it if you weren't in the shop when, when they said it needed to be done because everyone just wanted to do something. So, the, so these things like the rotors and the sheet metal and things, was that on a specific helicopter or was that interchangeable with you know different kinds of helicopters? When I was at Fort Hood, we had Apaches, Blackhawks, and 58s. 58s are the, like a, a Bell 206 and then you're now seeing, obviously, Blackhawks are flying a little bit more now that they're kind of released to civilians. But any of those aircraft, when when they needed 
a new piece of sheet metal put on our windows or doors fitted or whatever that may be, we would go do it. Mm-hmm. So it, it wasn't specific to one type of aircraft at all. Okay. So you learned a little bit more at Fort, Fort Hood, two years there. And then what was, yeah. what came so next? So two years there. And while we're at Fort Hood, we went and did, well, we did a couple things. Um, my commander was from the 160th, which is basically special forces of the army. And so he was trying to create a smaller, not special forces, special forces unit with our unit. And so we got to go do some, some neat things, I guess. Uh, we all got drowned in the, in the pool and we, we flew to Pensacola and, and went to the Navy base and they taught us how to drown properly like good military soldiers. So they, they would put us in a, a tank that resembled a helicopter and, and, and drowned us basically and tell us to get out of the helicopter. So we did all this kind of overwater training. Our helicopters went out and flew on some oil rigs out in the Gulf for practice. And then we were the first helicopter uh, unit from the Army to land on Navy helicopter carriers. So we went to Virginia and went out and we're on a Navy helicopter carrier and cruised around on the East Coast and did that for a week and a half. And so we got signed off by the military to be the first army unit to do overwater operations in a helicopter and then we also did joint a joint task force with homeland well i don't think it was homeland security at the time but the border patrol so we were on the border of arizona and mexico and basically catching drug runners and we did that we were supposed to do that for a month but we had crashed a helicopter and killed two people it was down by benson i want to say so i got to spend Four days in the middle of August, guarding what was left of a helicopter, smashed up on the ground, putting Dixie cups on two pilots, spread across all the bushes and everything. So that was fun. Uh, (laughs) And then after that, the colonel decided we needed to go home. So we did that. Well, during that period of time, we were also staying at Davis Mothin Air Force Base. And so I, again, with my fun military career and and, and ladies, I, I met a girl at Davis Mothin. She was actually in the Air Force. And so I had started dating her and then went back to Fort Hood, but then continued to come back to Arizona whenever we had time off. And she finished up her schooling at Davis Mothin and then ended up at Luke. And so by then I had nine months left in the, in the Army. And so I was coming to Arizona to be with her. I was doing everything. By that point, my unit in, at Fort Hood was going back to Korea back to my old base in Korea. And they said, well, you're going with us. And I said, there's no way you're going to get me to go back to Korea because you're going to be living in the worst possible conditions because there's no buildings for you there. They're like, no, no, it'll be fine. I said, no. And then I was able to stay at Fort Hood and basically decommission our our units, our our army unit disbanded and then reassembled in Korea. And there was three other units that were also going as part of that plan. And so I went from unit to unit and basically got rid of all their equipment as they went over to Korea. And then I was able to get out then. And I also had a job here on Falcon Field in Arizona um, before I was even out of the military. My former boss hired me while I was a year out of getting out of the Army. Okay. So Falcon Field being in Mesa and uh, Luke Air Force Base being, I guess, on the west side of Phoenix. So... That's where you, yep. I mean, and I guess you've stayed kind of in Phoenix, or at least that's been your home pretty much ever since, right? Exactly. Yeah. So 
um, started sending money to the girlfriend, got an apartment, got it fully furnished. So we lived by Metro Center. And that lasted about 30 days of actually living together. And that was over real quick. But yeah, so she went back to the Air Force Base. And then uh, I was just kind of out here on my own. And then guys from the Army started getting out. I always had a roommate because there's always somebody else getting out of the Army. Yeah, so that, and when I got out, I, I again, wasn't working on engines. I, you know, they just had a job for me. Uh, cleaning starters and oil pumps and just doing the dirtiest, nastiest job possible at, at the company that I could do, which was fine. They needed someone to, to run the test cell, which is how we test the engines after we build them to make sure that they're going to run all the way up to maximum power and without any issues or leaks or smoke or anything like that. So I started doing that. I was running the test cell when I wasn't cleaning starters and slowly worked my way into the shop. And that was, you know, within six months of actually being at the, with the, with my new company. And then I was, I was traveling back, back to Wisconsin occasionally. I try to make it back every year, but my family, my family kind of made it a pain in the butt. Having my mom and dad being divorced doesn't help of, I would try to go for Christmas and then everyone has their Christmas plans and you can't make everyone happy. There's no way. Oh, we got to be here for Christmas breakfast. Oh, you got to be here for lunch. You got to be here, you know, so you're spending an hour here and there with people. It doesn't work out for anybody. I was going to say, that was preparing you for marriage, though, when you have to split time with the in-laws and stuff. So Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> during that time, I had reconnected with my now wife, Heidi, and uh, she was going to school. So at, at one point during all that, I moved slightly closer to work. I went and bought a house. And by then, I was actually running the shop at work. Of course, running the shop, I was just telling someone the other day, there was only two of us, so I wasn't really running a whole lot of anything. It was more of a, hey, you want to do this job or you want me to do it? Oh. <laughs> but the other guy wanted, didn't want to be in charge, and he'd been doing the work long enough. He, did, he didn't want to have to do any of that kind of stuff. But we ended up rebuilding the shop, so I, had, I was actually running a shop with people underneath me. I moved to 48th Street and Thomas, so I got about halfway closer because I, I still liked being over there because Mesa still hadn't been built up as much as it is today, being that close to the airport and, and everything else. So if people came to town, they could basically call me when their luggage fell down the thing and I could meet them at the door. Mm -hmm. um, and then, so Heidi had moved out by then. Where did you and Heidi meet? She used to work with a friend of mine. They worked at a place called PFS, which is Pepsi Food Services back in Milwaukee. And actually, my uncle that was the helicopter pilot had worked there for about two weeks before smashing up a semi and they fired him. But yeah, so they, she worked with a friend of one of my buddy's girlfriends before I'd gone in the military initially when I met her the first time. And uh, I was invited to an open bar wedding and I, who's going to refuse that? I didn't care who I was going with. Free alcohol, I'm in. Okay. I got to go with Jabba the Hutt. I'm in, I'm in for the free alcohol. Right. So you knew, so you knew Heidi four or five years then before, you know, she, she actually came out to Phoenix then. Oh, no, it was probably longer than that. It was probably like 10 years. Oh, okay. Wow. You said you were 21 and she was what? 16 or 17. Okay. Yeah. I, th I think I missed that. <laughs> yeah. That wasn't, uh, you know, high on my, I didn't want to have to meet it, you know, meet her dad and be like, yeah, I, I, I want to take your daughter out. Well, so. I can see why it made sense to wait uh, eight or 10 years. Yeah. So, and in the meantime, she'd, she'd been married and, and divorced. And so she was living at her grandma's house and decided it was time for a change. She basically did the, spend the first year running from the 
the car to the couch and just going on about how it's so damn hot she's going to die. She found a job almost immediately when she moved down. And then when I had asked her to marry me, she said, well, I'll marry you, but we got to get another house. I can't, we can't do it in this because we had a, I had a duplex that uh, she wanted a new house. So we went home, got married and bought the house. That's actually, we just moved out of in December before we moved into our new, new house. Okay. Right so, on. so, so Chuck, so is this the same company you're still with? No, I, so the company that I was with, I was with for 22 oddish years and we were bought by a company from Spain and Europeans don't know how Americans work in general. They have a different work philosophy and they don't understand our business or what we do or how we do it. Um, in Europe, aviation is, uh, well, you know, when, when you get done with it, you get done with it. And in the U.S., when I call you should be done with it, even though you don't know what I'm calling you for yet. There's not a lot of people that do what I do specifically. It, it keeps getting smaller, not bigger. The engine that I've worked on was built in the 50s. Ever since I started on it, it's been the dying engine line, but it keeps going and people keep using the helicopter. So as long as there's someone flying one of those helicopters, there's going to be a need for a guy that can fix the hel- that engine, right? Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And, and with what what the people do with the helicopters, they're on fire contracts, fighting fires out in California, Arizona, wherever. If they're not flying, they're not making money, and the, they risk the chance of getting kicked off a contract. So the longer they're down, the worse it is for them. So so we have to be able to adjust for that and, and, and do whatever it takes to get them back in the air, because if they don't make money, I can't make money. I was just going to say, so when you fly somewhere... Like I know you've mm-hmm. gone to South America. I know you've gone to you know Big Island, Hawaii, different places to actually work on helicopters. Are those the helicopter engines you're working on? Then those from the '50s still? Yeah. Well, they can be all over the board. I mean, there. So there are newer engine designs, but it's all based off the same design from the '50s. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the the newest one. I mean, they'll make changes to the engine for improvements. So it's not exact identical to the engine from the 1950s, but it's based on the same design for the mm-hmm. most part. And I, I work on, I don't know, there's probably eight different variants of, of the engine that I work on in the series. Okay. So have you had any interesting trips where you've gone to make some of these repairs? Because like I say, I know you've gone all over. Any of them that kind of stand out? Well, the one in Hawaii was fun. I was at the fire department on the big island and the mechanic there, he's, he's very Hawaiian and hey, brother, take a break. Let's take a break. When we walked, I'm like, we just walked in the door. It's not break time here. Come on, brother, you're working too hard. But he didn't have the equipment to do what we needed to do. And I'd been there two days and all the firefighters were just basically sitting in the, the kitchen waiting on lunch or the next meal. Didn't really have anything to do. But they had a fire, the fire truck was outside with the bucket on it. And I said, okay, we're going to do some training, fellas. I need you to pull the bucket over the top of the helicopter and we're going to pull this engine out. It weighs about 200 pounds. So figure out what we need to do. And they went nuts and they strung ropes all over the place. But we got, we pulled the engine out with the fire truck. And then we had to put the other one back. I said, all right. And then the next day we had, there was a whole nother fire crew there. So I did the, I just basically repeated the whole thing with those guys and used the fire truck to put the engine back in the helicopter. So yeah, that was, that was an interesting one. So when you go well, out and you fly like down to, where'd you go in South America? I've been to uh, Honduras, Pegasus Agolfa, kind of the murder capital, San Pedro Sula, uh, Guatemala city, Belize, um, 
Panama City, Trinidad, Tobago. Okay. So when you go and you're making a repair, do you take things with you or you guys just fly in and the things are there waiting for you to do the work with? So generally we would have FedExed everything there and let it clear customs. For the most part, if it's a smaller fix, I would put the parts and the tools in my suitcase and just hand carry them. So okay. Yeah, I just wondered. If, I just wondered if they had like you know spare engines laying around or or what they well, did to get them, especially when you're down in like South America or or you know like you said the Caribbean. So or South America, there you're lucky if you if you don't bring it with you, you you're not going to get it. Mm-hmm. So you basically throw the kitchen sink in your suitcase and and hope that you're going to make it through customs. Or like you say, FedEx it ahead. Yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, especially if anywhere south of the border, if you don't have it, you're not going to get it while you're down there. Did you always feel I mean, comfortable I've, where you were when you were, uh, you know, doing these repairs or, you know, I mean, I know you were in some sketchy places. Did you ever feel, you know, you you were in danger? Um, I would say in Hon- so in Honduras, I, I you know, I, basically they, they're kind of family now because I've gone down to see these people enough and I've been in their homes, you know, it's no longer, it's, it's not just a job because honestly, these people are putting in their lives in your hands every time you're down there working. So the owner's son is kind of taking over the company in Honduras and his girlfriend at the time, now his wife, we were in the car and we were driving and she says something about being kidnapped twice. And I'm like, what, what? And she just mentioned it like it was, you know, nonchalant, not a care in the world about it. I'm like you, you were kidnapped twice. And she's like, well, my dad's a lawyer and my mom's, I forgot what her mom does, but they, they're well-to-do by Honduran standards. So she had a brand new truck that she wasn't allowed to drive anymore because basically it said kidnap me, you know, mm-hmm. on the side of it. And the second time she was kidnapped, they let her go immediately um, because they shot a cop in the face while they were trying to throw her in the car. This guy was off duty and was trying to intercede and uh, they shot him right there and killed him right in front of her. It was normal to her. That kind of weirds you out a little bit. And then uh, I was talking to the, the U.S. Embassy has an airplane in the hangar next door and there's a guy that's a U.S. citizen that works on it. And I talked to him and he said, yeah, there was a guy got shot in the, in the street right behind us because he had his Rolex on and wanted his Rolex. So to a certain extent, I get a little nervous about it. But anymore, it's, if it's going to happen, it's going to happen. So I don't put a whole lot of worrying into it anymore. Like even a cop pointed an AK at me while I was down there. I just grabbed the barrel and pointed it away from me because he was they pulled me over because I didn't have my seatbelt on. I'm like, whoa, whoa, you're pointing a gun at me for not having my seatbelt on. Hmm. So I didn't like Guatemala a whole lot. Uh, that one seemed really sketchy to me. Um, the guy that came to pick me up had his windshield blacked out with window tint on his windshield. He said that's so that the kidnappers can't see who's in the car. Well, you can't see out of this car either. But okay. But other than that, I mean, other than being the white guy down there sticking out like a sore thumb, it doesn't, I, yeah, it doesn't bother me that much. Is there different pay? Because, you know, when you're uh, sometimes in the military, I guess you can get hazard pay or something, right? I mean, to, oh, yeah, it... no, there's no, you, you get paid the same amount. <laughs> no, no, no special privileges for going down there at all. Uh, I was rooting for you, Chuck. Yeah. Oh, well, what can you do? Part of the pay is actually being able to go down there. So for as, as terrible as, as I make it sound, I've never eaten a better meal than when I've been down there. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I love going down to any of those countries just for the hotel breakfast. And I don't eat breakfast in what most people would consider breakfast. I, I'll load up on a plate just full of fruit because I've never had fresher fruit down there. 
even in Hawaii, the, I, I don't know how you can get a pineapple fresher in Honduras than in Hawaii, but they manage. We've spent a little time talking about your career because I think I just find it so interesting. But uh, but let's let's talk a little bit about you know some of the other things I guess that have gone on in your life. And I you just mentioned Hawaii. I know you went to Maui. experience I, I think other than my wife wanting to do every single possible thing we could fit in to that week there was really no downtime i'm i'm a vacation person that i could read a book and be happy sitting on a lawn chair in the sun and and i don't have to worry about my phone ringing or any of that kind of stuff so that's that's a vacation to me but my wife is the opposite where she you know we're here we're in hawaii we're gonna go do something i'm gonna drag you we're gonna go see everything oh man so, i mean heidi must have contacted me seven or eight times about 
different questions about this or that or the other, but you know what? I enjoyed it. And, and I knew you guys were going to do a lot of stuff. <laughs> we did. We did. I, I don't think there's anything that we missed as far, you know, as far as we did the road to Hana, we, so I, I found things since then that I would go back and try and do. Um, we did the bus tour for the road to Hana, which was, eh, I mean, I get not wanting to drive that drive. I would say the funniest part was the Asian lady that was more worried about her flip-flops till she was wearing all white and her flip-flop, she stepped into the surf a little bit and one of her flip-flops got in the waves and she was trying to bend over to pick it up and a wave got her and her phone and her camera and everything else was in the ocean and she was still worried about that. I'm like, lady, it's a 99 cent flip-flop and you just ruined a brand new phone and a brand new digital camera for 99 cents. And on top of that, you're soaking wet and you're wearing white. Nice visual. Oops. We were in Ireland at the at, at some of the castles, and you would see the bus tours pull up and just the gaggle of people following the tour guide, which I guess is fine if you if you don't know some of that information going into it. When we were in England and Ireland, we always had someone that knew everything about all that stuff. Right? So they were our tour guide. We didn't need someone that works there to tell us the story. And we had you for Hawaii, so there was that. Good, yeah, yeah. no, it's fun, fun and fun to uh, share it with uh, folks too. So I was, you know, it's always fun when somebody's going over and, and like I say, that's why I don't mind uh, talking to people about it at all. And so, yeah, I'm glad you yeah, guys had a good I time. On top of that, some of like probably one of the better things that we did wasn't even something that she had penciled in on her calendar. Right. Which is when we went and we just went and got snorkels and masks and flip flippers and went on the West side there and we're in the cove swimming and we had dolphins and turtles and everything swimming with us. And that was just a, well, let's just go get math, you know, snorkeling. We'll just go snorkeling. Yeah, something spontaneous. Yeah, but I, it was almost too. I don't like being rushed around like that. So, but oh well. Yeah, she one of those where you, that's you need matters. a vacation from your vacation. Exactly. So. Well, okay. So no, you I, guys uh, have been in. I guess. My gosh, I'm just trying to think chronologically. Oh, but you've been in Arizona for like 25, 30 years, then, haven't you? Yeah, since '96. No plans on leaving. I just was in Texas for three weeks, and I was like, "Well, why don't you just move to Dallas?" I'm like. Eh, no, it's different, different way of life here. Heidi's gotten used to the heat. Yeah. Yep. Well, she still complains, but probably not as much as if she was in four feet of snow. I'm done shoveling snow. If we want to see snow, we'll drive up to the Grand Canyon or Flagstaff. Yeah. Do you have any good memories from uh, the poker crew? Well, yeah. Even, you know, all the way back to when we were playing above the oil change from Pro Lube, right? Mm hmm. And we'd go next door to the bar or whatever. But anything it like standing out in particular, probably probably the Christmas parties. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I was the bearer of Steve's Steve's bad luck with the, the Mad Dog. So, <laughs> or the was it Steve that wrapped up the old tire for Jeff? I believe it was. No, it's definitely and at this point with not playing all the time, it's definitely even almost more fun to catch up when everyone's able to be there. Mm -hmm. You know. I haven't played since you left the last time, since the last time I saw you. Yeah, and I'll be back down there when it's safe and uh, we'll, we'll play again. But I, I tell you, good <laughs> friends, are uh, that's an important part of life to me. And, and it's certainly been fun over the years, you know, just all the, you guys and getting together and, and just playing games. So here's another shit, interesting you know? one that you might not know about me getting beat up by my Hawaiian friend. No. Uh, Michelle Manu. So I, when I was doing my martial arts training, I had a buddy whose daughter – from work was doing Lua. She was actually a professional Lua 
dancer at like 13 for not really understanding everything they're doing, but watching her, you could tell that she was better. She wasn't forcing anything and she was like doing her dances and you could watch the, the older girls and be like, you can tell like she knows, like she's thinking about it. Whereas my buddy's daughter, I'd go watch her and be like, she's just amazing. Cause she's just doing it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I've been, uh, we went to the zoo and did one of the pig roasts for uh, a fundraiser. And the one guy tried to get me to, to put on the grass skirt. And I was like, I'm not putting the, I don't think you know what you're asking for, mister. And he was like six, five, right? This big, huge. I don't know that he was Hawaiian, but his wife was Hawaiian. And he's like six, five, all tanned up. And he's got his little Hawaiian kids running around. And he was supposed to carry the pig around the reception hall at the zoo in his grass skirt with all the, the whole get up. And he's like, well, my buddy's not coming. And I was sitting at the table with him. And he goes, would you mind? And I'm like, you don't want that. I'm like, first of all, the pig's going to slide off in my face because I'm 5'8". <laughs> you pick that thing up, you're going to have to hold it at your waist, so I'm holding it above my head. But um, And then, so through all that, through the, my buddy at work whose daughter was doing Lua, and then my martial arts instructor, he wanted to know about Hawaiian martial arts. And my buddy had been following this Michelle Manu, who lives in Long Beach-ish, Seal Beach. And so she she does the actual martial arts that Lua represents. She actually does like the true Lua. So I've I've gone out every time I'm in California, I try and go see her. And uh, the one time we actually had the opportunity to work out, I tore my quad. So <laughs> we didn't get to do a whole lot of understanding and learning mar- the Hawaiian martial arts, but just uh, watching her with different tools that that she uses. And while I was in while I was working on that helicopter in Hawaii. At the on the Big Island, the mechanic that was there, his family is, and I don't remember Eric's last name, but they were the keeper of the bones. That was what his last name meant, and so they were in charge of keeping up, taking care of all the bones from way back when. So that was really interesting, and I was trying to talk him into handing me, giving me, I don't, and I don't know the name of it. It's a paddle, and it's got the shark teeth in it. it looks like a ping pong paddle, but it's pointier with the shark yeah. teeth. Yeah, as a matter of fact, if if I'm not mistaken, that's Caneva, and that was the name of our softball team. Yeah, I couldn't convince him to hand me down the 500-year-old the one that he had. <laughs> he just wouldn't do it. I don't know why. Yeah, and those, is, thing, those things are a deadly weapon, too. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and she so she she practices with all those different things. But understanding that Lua is hiding all those different maneuvers is actually makes it that much more interesting. Yeah, so Lua... Um, I'm just thinking when you say dancing, these people are dancing the hula Mm -hmm. and within the hula are a lot of those moves that you're talking about that they can then use in, uh, in warfare and fighting and so forth. Yeah. So that makes it that much more interesting when you understand, when you understand that they're hiding all those movements Mm -hmm. in the dance and then try to figure out how that movement would translate into a fighting maneuver or, Mm -hmm. you know. They have a hula competition and it's called the, uh, the Merry Monarch and it's from the big Island Hmm. and they'll have a men's section. And these guys, when they come walking out on the stage, I mean, they look like they're just all bodybuilders. It's just amazing. And they're, they're doing these moves. And of course it's all in unison and it's it's actually very cool to watch, but, uh, I could definitely see how that would transition into uh, fighting. Yeah. So having met her makes it, you know, that much more interesting to, to see those kind of things that, before that, it's just a dance, right? 
Mm -hmm. You don't know any better. So yeah, that was that's one of my interesting Hawaii facts from when I was going over there quite a bit, but haven't been able to go since. So has the pandemic had any other effect as far as uh, you know, other than travel? Has has it slowed things down on your work or no? That starts keeps the same. uh, it, It depends on what the people are doing, right? So I have a very good friend that's also a customer that lives in Texas. And he was basically had turned his helicopter in an Uber and would fly people from Fredericksburg, Texas, down to San Antonio for the Spurs games or whatever was going on in San Antonio. And he would fly all these rich people around so they didn't have to spend any time in traffic. So that's totally dried up for him. And another thing, he would take people hog hunting out of the side of his helicopter. And nobody's doing that currently. I mean, he's had some here and there. So for people that were doing that kind of stuff, it dried up. But then he also goes and spends a month in Iowa and sprays cornfields. So we call it, when they're doing that, those those are ag operators. So they're spraying fields with either pesticide or you know fertilizer or whatever they may be spraying at the time. So that has that still got to grow crops. So those guys are still flying. Obviously, the fire the guys that are fighting fires are still flying. A lot of police departments had stopped flying. There weren't as much crimes happening because people were staying home. So the police didn't need the helicopters until everyone decided to get dumb and start rioting and burning places down. So they went back to full force, if not more. And that'll continue on after the elections, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. And then the air ambulance is probably going to be the hardest hit ones because no one was driving. No one was getting in accidents. You know, people weren't out doing outdoors things where they needed to get an air ambulance pickup from wherever. So they were down like 30%. Mm-hmm. And then the other one would be oil and gas people. And with the price of gas being less than $30 a barrel, they pretty much shut off all the taps. So the oil and gas guys aren't doing anything either. And those are, and then the tour operators aren't flying anywhere because who wants to go do a tour? Right. So those all, those, all those kind of jobs have dried up, but I mean, the other ones are still going. So it's uh you, you've just had a really interesting uh, experience that, yeah, again, probably started at least uh, the seed was planted with that uh, Huey trip with your uncle, man, years ago. Oh, yeah. And I still haven't been able to get his butt in another helicopter since. <laughs> Keep trying. He he kind of travels all over the place. And, and and my little brother travels, basically. He hasn't stopped traveling since the, the whole thing started. So we have fun back and forth stories and and, you know, oh, if you're in this, oh, what state are you in? Okay, you got to go to this restaurant and this store and you got to catch up and you got to go do this or you got to go do that. It's basically wrapped around food or going to a particular store at this point. Well, I guess I didn't talk to you about my whole uh, Lake Cordon Blue chef school that I had done. No, why don't you why don't you finish up with that? Because I, I do sure. remember you talking about that a little bit. Ever, actually, ever since I came to Phoenix. Uh, when I was in my apartment on 19th and Northern, there was a, a college that was back there. I I don't I, I like going to school. I, I don't mind learning things. I don't want to do school stuff though, if that makes sense. But, so they had a chef school. I went to this. They had an open house. My grandma, when I was growing up, she was a nurse, but she would go to school and would take it for no credit. And so at the time, she was able to go to school for a bunch of different things that she just took it just for herself. So I don't know if that's where I get that from, but. The school would keep calling me and, and and asking if I wanted to go to chef school. And I said, no, I don't want to. I just want to take just the cooking part. I don't want to learn how to plan a recipe for 500 people. I, I'm never going to cook for 500 people. I don't want to do that. That's not what I want. And at one point, there was a 
a Groupon. I want to say Groupon. I, again, I don't know what which one, but something similar to that. Um, for Lake Lake Cordon Bleu in Scottsdale, and it was twelve hundred bucks for twelve months of one. You'd go once a month and go spend four hours at at Lake Cordon Bleu and learn how to do something. Right, Michael. This is perfect, and Heidi was in. And so what I did was I bought. You could spend a hundred dollars for the one for one class, or it was twelve hundred for the twelve months. And I said. I'm going to pay, I'm going to go to the first one. And then if I, what I want to do, I'll pay the 1200 bucks and, and go for the year. And surprisingly, Heidi didn't mind me dropping 1200 bucks on that. I went to the first one and really enjoyed myself, even though I was the only guy at the whole, you know, in the whole school. And there's probably 20 people there, but the instructors were really good. And it was just learning about making whatever dish they decided to make that day. And then they gave me the, basically a schedule for a year. And I, so I, threw down my money and, and started doing that. Then the school decided it was trying, they were going to do it bi-monthly. So it was going to be two classes every month, which turned it into probably should have paid 2,400 bucks for the year. But uh, I said, look, I paid for a year's worth of classes. The fact that you added classes doesn't change what I'm paying. I've already paid. I'm going. So I went to like 24 classes and it could be cooking one day and then baker, baking the next class. And it just bounced all over the place. I did that for a year and I had a friend that also signed up for it and she's from Ireland and I could just go and spend the whole class just listening to her talk about cooking just in general with, cause she still had her Irish accent. So that kind of drove me to doing that. And then we were on the same page as far as cooking together and we would go and we'd cook and we'd show up with a shopping bag full of Tupperware and we would bring all our food home for our friends and family. At the end of the class, it would be a buffet kind of, Everyone would sit around and eat. And I'm like, well, I just watched the lady burn soup. I'm not, I don't want to eat her soup. I'm like, I'm taking my soup home. Huh? So we would, we got to the point where we would serve enough. So the class had something that taste of ours, but we were taking the majority of it home. And so finally the director of the school came down and, and told me I couldn't attend any more classes, which was the second to last class that I was going to take. But at one point the instructors put me in charge of a baking class for all these people. And I was like, well, why am I in charge? And they're like, well, you've been coming for the better part of a year. You could probably teach this class. And I'm like, I can, but that's not why I'm here. So I basically did what you would probably guess they would learn on uh master chef or something. Mm -hmm. So now is this a hobby just, now? Uh, here and there, I got to be in the mood to do it. It's a mood thing. I don't, I don't do it on a daily basis. I mean, I, I, I'll pull out the recipes if I'm going to cook something, you know, I, I like to do it for like Thanksgiving and, and pull out. I have a couple of special ones that like, especially holiday related ones, you know, but yeah. Well, I was thinking Heidi, yeah. maybe you was looking to the future when she uh, okayed you taking those classes. No. So when I was going to the classes, Heidi was in the middle of a diet. So every time I'd bring food home, she'd be like, I, that all looks fantastic. Get it out of the house. So my neighbors really appreciated me going to that class. Yeah. They're probably sad to see it end. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> when are you going to make that soup again? I would bring, bring, bring the neighbors or the guys at work. Cause a lot of times the guys would be at work and I'd come from class and feed them at lunch, you know? So everyone appreciated it. Well, you've but certainly had something. a interesting life, no doubt. Yeah. Well, there's hopefully more to come, right? Yeah. Yeah, hopefully so. But, uh, but yeah, I appreciate you taking the time, Chuck. And you got, you know, I know it's kind of out of your comfort level maybe, or, or whatever to sit down and just talk about yourself. I know that for a lot of people, that's, 
not something they enjoy, but, uh, man, for, for those of us that tune into this podcast, you know, it is very enjoyable, you know, I have. So in 2018, I was also, so we have a big conference that we do every year. It's called the HAI helicopter Mm -hmm. association international. Mm -hmm. So you get to meet all the different vendors that work on helicopters and all the people that make helicopters, uh, show up to show off the new, you know, what they're working on and all the customers go to, to talk to everybody. So in 2018, I was awarded the helicopter mechanic of the year. So that was kind of a big deal. Yeah, you they turned your head. You turned it. your head when you said that, but yeah, uh, <laughs> I was the 2018 helicopter mechanic of the year. There you go. As voted on man. by by that organization. Very cool. Well, hey, man, that did, I think that speaks to the degree of your ability as a helicopter mechanic for sure. Yeah, hopefully. Every day is taking someone's life in your hands, kind of, and so it's it's not the same as working not not the discount working on a car, but the engine in your car breaks, you pull off to the side of the road. It's not a road you're pulling off on the side of an helicopter, you know. Yeah, for sure. So, all right, buddy. Well, hey, thanks again. Appreciate you you agreeing to be on the podcast and oh. and hearing your story. It's it's been fun. Good. Hopefully, you can edit that all down. Make it work. You know I will. <laughs> <laughs> you got nothing but time on your hands now. That's right, buddy. So. All right, everyone. Well, thanks for tuning in to another episode of Nobody Knows Your Story. And again, thanks to uh, you, Chuck, for participating. And we'll be back in two weeks with another interview and another interesting story on Nobody Knows Your Story. Aloha. from